0: Well, as we've been reporting, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross saying that the Trump administration will impose new duties on steel and aluminum imports from three key trading partners, the European Union, Canada and Mexico. And here to tell us more about this is Joe Doe. He is our metals and mining reporter for Bloomberg News. And you can follow him on Twitter at Joe Doe. And that's D-E-A-U-X for Doe. All right, Joe Doe. Why are we doing this to three entities that are ostensibly our allies.
2: You know, I had a source yesterday on the phone tell me when we were gathering that this would likely happen, say, it looks like the administration is finally having their welcome to Queens moment. The only problem is a welcome to Queens moment only works in real estate and not in global trade.
1: What is a welcome to Queens moment? Uh,
2: Essentially saying, this is New York, this is our territory and you're gonna play by our rules. And um, the Trump administration as we know, brought this up back in April of last year. I mean, he's been talking about something like this since the beginning of his presidency. But a year later, one of the things that we kept hearing was, you know, we think he might actually just pass the tariff on everybody. And the thought behind that is nobody gets away from it. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you are. We're going to protect this industry. Uh, They have now done it. Well, and yeah.
1: Okay, so so let's just uh, take stock of where we are. So uh, Wilbur Ross, today, Commerce Secretary, announced these tariffs. Said that there was not going to be an exemption for some of our main trading allies. Mexico already has come back and said that they are going to reciprocate with uh, either tariffs or other measures. Yeah. Uh, you have discussions now that the reason why the tariffs are going ahead is because NAFTA talks were insufficient uh, from the the White House's perspective. Where do we move forward? with this. I mean, if this was a negotiating tool, yeah. it's over. So what does that mean going forward? So
2: I think there's two ways of moving forward. There's the there's the markets, right? So the markets just play by the rules. They say, "Listen, we've got to accept that there are these tariffs on aluminum imports and on steel imports, and you just have to deal with it." So any customers that want steel or aluminum that's outside of the country, they got to pay that premium, they got to pay pay that duty, and that's that's that, right? And so you just go back to normal and you act like whatever is now in place is just how you play by the game. Politically, it's a midterm season. Uh, there's a question as to whether or not this protectionism will play up well in uh, battleground states, battleground districts. And that part is yet to be seen. Uh, we know that companies don't necessarily benefit from this. American companies. Alcoa, the biggest aluminum maker in the United States, probably the best known aluminum maker in the world, will not necessarily benefit from these because they actually produce more of their aluminum in Canada than they do in the United States. Uh, the steel makers generally look like they'll benefit from this, but steel's a much more domestic industry. I mean, 67% of our consumption of steel is made in the U.S. Only 15% of what we consume from aluminum is made in the U.S., Canada makes nearly 50% of the aluminum that we use. That's what makes this a big deal. The EU, on the grand scheme of things, not that big of a producer for aluminum and the steel used in the U.S. The EU is big because of the larger trade implications that this has. The EU is moving because now they have to react to our tariffs because of the worries that dumping will no longer be in the United States. It will instead go to the EU. So politically, the EU says we're raising trade barriers and retaliation to the United States. But in actuality, they're raising trade barriers because they need to protect their own industry as well, because other countries will start trying to dump there because they don't have to pay the tariffs. So there's so much going on here. And now that this has come into place, we're going to see it play out. I don't know if this was something that I expected. I don't know if this is something that the market expected, but it has happened. And now this is the new reality. And we're going to see whether or not Trump actually making good on a truly Trumpian policy is going to benefit or hurt him in the long run
0: is this going to hurt
2: u.s consumers u.s consumers have already adjusted to these higher prices they expected some sort of higher prices would come the people who end up probably getting hurt are the makers the manufacturers of the stuff that we use so if you're arconic you make airplane wings you make pieces used in automotive actually the same with any steel producer outside of the United States sending to Detroit. These are the ones that they are really worried. That's why Caterpillar would even say, whoa, 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 let's hold on a second here.
1: So uh, I was just looking at Ian Bremmer. Uh, he just put out in Twitter, transatlantic relations just hit a new post-war low, hmm. but we're not at bottom yet. Hmm. Can you give us a sense of the last time that the U.S. imposed tariffs like this, and yeah. what happened?
2: We imposed tariffs. Uh, it was a 201 petition by President uh, Bush back in 2002 and it was to protect the industry that was getting hurt what eventually happened was they passed the 201 and there was so much outcry by industry across the board that they started giving exemptions and rolling thing back rolling things back and ultimately saying forget about it we're just we're getting rid of this entire policy and they scrapped it <laughs> that's n- no pun intended but they got rid of it because it was just so unpopular and for businesses uh very um, detrimental. Just to your point, Caterpillar shares down nearly
0: 2% right now. There you go.
1: Joe Doe, thank you so much for being with us. We will be hearing more from you as this does play out. Uh, really important insight. Joe Doe covers uh, the metals and mining industries for us here at Bloomberg News. And we've just been talking about how uh, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross did say that the European Union, Canada, and Mexico would all not be exempt from these uh, steel and aluminum tariffs.
0: What keeps money managers up at night? Well, that's why we've got a uh, John Moninger. He is a managing director of Eaton Vance, helping to manage over four hundred and twenty billion dollars. He's based in Boston, but he joins us here in our eleven three zero studios. John, it's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, Eaton Vance Advisors has something called the Top of Mind Index. Tell us, what is this index? What is it supposed to do?
3: Yeah, Pim, thank you for having us today. So the Advisor Top of Mind Index is a survey we do every quarter. Uh, we survey about 1,000 advisors, and it's really trying to get in the mind of what's on their mind and what's on the mind of their investors who they're working with. And so through that survey, you try to get some insights into what's driving their decision-making. Uh, in particular, if you think about what's going on now, I'll just give you the highlight of, the, of this particular survey Um, we had volatility continue to be one of the top marks and top concerns of advisors maybe not surprising by any means income being number two and a bit of a distant number two we've seen that kind of move around a little bit from quarter to quarter but certainly volatility kind of really driving a lot of what's on their mind and I would say the number one cause of that has really been centered around geopolitical risk. So although we see a lot of market movement, it's a lot of things like even what we saw this morning with you know tariffs being put in place, uh, which is you can question both has a downstream effect, but also just has a headliner effect as well. Makes people really nervous.
1: So can you connect the top of mind index to actions? I mean, if yeah. they're worried about volatility, that means what for how they manage their money?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question. So, so what we're seeing is a few things. You've seen this in just fund flows, and we'll see this in the survey as well. I'll start with the survey. I'll connect it to fund flows. In the survey, you'd see... Uh, Number one issue, what are they doing about it? Short duration strategies on the fixed income side is where they've been going in a pretty big way. So we've seen a pretty big pull down in flows in equities. We've seen a pretty good resurgence of fixed income flows, but really on the short duration side. Let me drive into that for a minute. So what we're seeing specifically is floating rate strategies picking up. Makes a lot of sense, rising rates. What can I do to participate in rising rates is certainly floating rate strategies, but also you're seeing just traditional short duration strategies moving in uh, in a very big way. In fact, if you look at the fund Flows just in the last six months alone, but $153 billion have come in a taxable fixed income, but about 40% of that was short duration strategies. Again, you'll see a pretty good move going on there. People not sure where to go. What do I do? I put into more of a conservative play. I'll add, though, one that we're seeing is quite interesting is on the municipal bond side. We've seen a lot of pressure in muni bonds. Certainly, uh, performance is negative year-to-date and pretty much across the board. Uh, We've seen some movement in the floating rate muni bond area. We don't hear a lot about that in the marketplace. We actually offer one of the few strategies that do this, but other firms do it. There's firms that are out there that play in the space. And floating rate municipal bonds actually have higher quality and are certainly a great place to participate in today's markets. John, I want to get your thoughts on what the customer is really
0: interested in, because I thought this was a very yeah. uh, telling point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can debate and, and you know, if you're a, a kind of jaundiced investor, you can say, well, you know, responsible investing. It sounds yeah. nice. It's got a touchy feely right. thing to it, whether whatever you're feeling or, or, or thinking about it. The reality is the customer is
3: really interested in this. There is no question. Thank you for bringing this up. I'll tell you, the in the survey, we'll tell you two-thirds of investors care about responsible investing at some level. It might be at a minor level. It might be I want to restrict something in a portfolio, or it might be at a very deep environmental, social, and governance-type level, and we're seeing the full spectrum of that. The flip side of that is advisors aren't as educated, so they're a little more nervous to bring this forth to their investors. So I'll tell you two quick stories. One, um, that's the number one ask. So we've put in place a very strong educational effort to educate the financial advisor on how to actually have this conversation with the client. Importantly, though, if you look at the elite advisors, the top in the space today, I would say we've seen a shift, and I would say and this shift has only occurred in the past 12 months, where they've went from being prepared to have the conversation to now leaning in and saying, "Wow." This is now a conversation I have to have with every client so they know I'm prepared and can actually have this ability, capability uh, to deliver responsible investing to their investors. So I, th- that's a big shift. That will transcend, no question, as we know, uh, down into the other advisors. So the educational ask is becoming, I would say, greater and greater every single day.
1: And this comes after yesterday Dick Sporting Goods pro- uh, reported better than expected earnings. Mm-hmm. Even though they had stopped selling guns in right. response to what happened, their shares gained almost 26 percent. That's flying in the face of a lot of people who said, you know what, if you stop selling guns and you make this big stance, Mm -hmm. you're gonna suffer. That's right. They didn't. So with returns and sort of, you know doing good and, yeah, and yeah. getting returns. I mean, the focus is still on getting returns, right? So right. how do you, how are you instructing people to have that conversation? Yeah,
3: it's a great question because because there are return matters most, right? At the end of the day, responsible investing is only as good as the fact that you can put up returns that are in line with the market. Uh, we have, through our Calvert affiliate as an example, or parametric, we've been able to demonstrate a long-term track record of that, just using basic indexes, frankly. So putting an ESG structure on top of an index like the Russell 1000, we can demonstrate 10 years of performance that show we can match the market. Many other organizations do the same thing. So we're not alone in that. I think the market's starting to realize you can actually get better performance, or at least market level performance by actually doing the right thing. And it starts to make sense when you start breaking down, take foreign countries, take emerging markets, for example, if you have really solid social governance and environmental uh, considerations built in your portfolio, and you're acting against that, they tend to do better. And we've got, a, again, a history of showing that in, in our portfolios, uh, we're able to uh, to outperform over periods of time. And again, we're not the only ones in that space doing it.
1: John Monninger, thank you so much for being with us and for illuminating the results from the Top of Mind Index, or Atomics. Uh, John Monninger is Managing Director at Eaton Vance, overseeing uh, about $422 billion, normally is based in Boston, but joins us here in our 1130 studios.
0: is italy an emerging market is it like argentina is it like turkey well let's find out we have damien sass our fixed income strategist for bloomberg intelligence in the studio here to tell us more damien so is italy on par with an emerging market
4: Uh, i wouldn't say that especially argentina and turkey um what we're seeing here i think is a good old-fashioned run on the uh on on italian bonds right i mean italy is basically one of the Largest issuers of debt globally, um, far larger than Turkey or Argentina. But the important thing to remember is that all that debt is denominated in euro, right? So in order for it to trade even close to Argentina and Turkey, he, which which I, I mean, if you're investing in those bonds, you're carrying in lira and uh, uh and PESO respectively. I mean, it's just it's just far riskier when you do that cross border currency calculation. And so for me, I just don't see how euro denominated Italian bonds are trading on par with them, or how you can even compare them at this stage.
1: Wait, but they are, but they are kind of. I mean, if you look at credit default swaps, for example, Italy is looking more like an emerging market.
0: Yeah, see, no. I, so I set you up for that, yeah, and I mean, and then you dissed me. You just went. It's just the quote
4: you said. Now, I mean, five-year CDS. <laughs> explain what explain what that all means. So so in order to protect against the default, one might buy a credit default swap. And so five-year CDS for Italy is now on par with that of Turkey. In fact, it's traded through Turkey, meaning to protect against a default in Italy is more expensive than it is to protect against a default in Turkey. So in order for, first of all, Italy to default, it's got a first break from the EU, and then it's got a default on its debt obligations, right? So oh. it's a huge... I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah.
1: No, no, no. You, I mean, To me, though, I want to just push back because it makes sense what you're saying. The risk of Italy defaulting at this point does not seem, when you take a step back, like it is greater than Turkey, which can't get its currency under control. That said, perhaps what this shows is that central banks are losing some control and that everything is mispriced, and Italy is being priced a little bit more on fundamentals with the fear of the ECB stepping back. And maybe the question should be asking, does this mean that the emerging markets should be priced at completely different yeah. levels with risk much higher than it is right now?
4: Yeah, no, I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about. Think about where we are. Rates globally are still near historical lows. So any little move is, a very, is an exaggerated move in developed and emerging markets right now. And that's exactly what we just saw in Italy. And in fact... A lot of the move in 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 italian yields and italian bonds btps were was driven by the relative lack of liquidity in those bonds right so they just got marked up pretty quickly and now people are kind of saying well maybe things aren't so bad you know maybe you know the five-star movement so on and so forth so i think you're absolutely right i think it has something to do with liquidity and and the structural you know makeup of the market itself that's kind of driving things but but you know as these markets sort of normalize, as the U.S. yield curve pushes higher, as rates globally push higher, you're going to see these dislocations be that much more magnified, right? Rate ball is going up. I mean, I think we've pretty much hit the cycle.
0: Volatility for those, right? Yeah, sorry. Rate volatility
4: is definitely going up globally. And so as that happens, what you see are these, you know, kind of exaggerated moves. And and, and I think that's, quite frankly, what's been happening in Italy this week (laughs) and Spain tomorrow, I mean, I guess, right? So, I mean, that's the other thing, right? I mean, it's kind of amazing. There is a little bit of a fundamental take to this because Italy's fundamentals, uh, you know, are not nearly as good as Spain, right? And so... Spain hasn't really moved the way Italy has, even though I think the Basques just announced that they're gonna back, you know, Sanchez. So I think I think Spain is at risk of a of a, a, a no confidence vote, right? So, so that's a pretty big deal, and yet. Spanish CDs is not really moving the same way Italian CDs is, and, and Spanish bonds haven't really reacted as much as you would have thought. So, um, so for me, I guess you know, the, 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 you know, w- what I'm looking at in terms of emerging markets is Argentina and Turkey are on an island all to themselves. Um, you know, their currencies are a mess, their economies are are are, are a mess really, and, and you know, they're going to need to really kind of. Uh, Clean things up. Italy's in a different situation. Italy's still part of the EU until further notice. And and in order for anything to kind of you know move the needle in Italy, you're gonna have to see you know, you're gonna have to see them break from the EU. How's that working in Brazil? How's that trucker strike? Yeah. yeah. So so what's what, what I took out of the trucker strike, and and I'm not as close to it as I should be, is the fact that. Petrobras, I mean, you know, basically Petrobras makes their money by selling fuel. And last week what happened was they made the decision to uh, lower petrol prices. And they did it in partly in response to the fact that you yeah, had this trucker strike and, you know, the, the government maybe applied a little bit of pressure to Petrobras. Now Petrobras, despite the fact that it's 60 some odd percent owned by the Brazilian government, it's not part of the government. And people who are invested in Petrobras bonds, when there are quite a few of them, um, like to think that the company is making decisions that are in the creditor's best interest, meaning we're gonna charge you more for your gas or your oil. And that's not what happened here. So now people are kind of saying, well, well wait a second. Maybe Petrobras really is being pushed by the government. Maybe they don't have our best interest at heart. And I think that's why what we're seeing, at least in Petrobras, which is one of the largest constituents in emerging market hard country debt, is you're seeing, you know, spreads blow out on the back of that and people, you know, kind of calling into their calling into question their integrity and, and the efficacy of management.
1: Okay. I wanna I wanna go back to a point here, just to, on a broader level with emerging markets. If we're talking about how all risk has been muted by central banks and then a flare up causes people to suddenly uh price fundamental risk, yeah. you know, and then it goes back to this sort of complacency. I'm just wondering how much would emerging markets have to reprice if people started to feel like central banks weren't backstopping the market?
4: Well, I think Sentiment is a function of returns, and EM has is off to the worst start on record this year, right? And as those losses build, or let's not say they build, but let's say they persist, sentiment starts to sour for the asset class writ large. And I think that's the real risk because, okay, fine, you know, things are still good, the economies are still healthy. Yeah, okay, yields are climbing, and we're pushing the currencies uh, uh, down, you know, relative to the dollar. But but by and large, things are better today than they were, you know, only five years ago in emerging markets. But the longer these losses persist, that drives investors who are invested in emerging markets to redeem to basically withdraw their investments. And that's gonna basically make it that much more difficult for these local economies to 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 borrow and to and to lever up and 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 to run their economies. And and that's when it hits the real economy or the real economies within emerging markets, right? And that's when you know you you really can start to feel the pain. That transmission mechanism doesn't happen overnight. Right. Certain countries are different than others. Turkey, which has a lot of external debt you're seeing them get smacked right on the, you know, because it's a liquidity issue right now in Turkey. They can't refinance their debt. But at a place like Brazil, it's not a liquidity issue. It's a solvency issue, right? They have long-term structural problems, Pim, to your point, you know, with trucker strikes and all the things that are going on there with, you know, Social Security, you know, and, and what have you. But, but that's a long-term issue in Brazil.
1: And, and, and that's why Brazil's not getting hit as badly. Just real quick, are we starting to see those uh, withdrawals in any real Volume. Oh, we've
4: been seeing them, and they're not. I mean, look, they've started to peter off a bit. Um, in fact, what you saw was a, a, a kind of a transfer. It was it was EM debt that was you know driving the outflows for the better part of the last few few months, yeah. and that shifted over to the equity side, which to me is maybe an indication that we're getting to the ninth inning there, and that things might get a little better.
1: Damien Sassauer, we love having you on. Thank you so much for being with us. Damien Sassauer, fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, an expert in developing markets. Uh, really an interesting story. It's amazing to see Italian credit default swaps trade in tandem with those of Turkey. It has come to light that your personal data is worth a lot. And the more people realize this, the more questions there are about who profits from this data. Joining us now, Brian O'Kelly, Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of App Nexus. It is an exchange, the second largest only. To Google behind only Google's Double Click Exchange for real-time bidding on the open internet, um, and basically, if I understand this correctly, when advertisers want to figure out what to pay for you personally to view a certain ad of theirs on, say, uh, whatever pick your news site, you your platform helps them auction off that particular place in real time. Correct? Exactly. So you're assessing how much people are worth. So. Do you feel like there has been a market pushback recently, especially as the uh, European Union enforces the General Data Protection Regulation? Has there been more kind of obstacles for you in this process? It's
5: interesting. As long as you're, as a consumer, aware that you're going to be advertised to – Uh, In concept, you should be okay with it. The idea here is that privacy is a fundamental human right. But if you decide that you want your information used by advertisers in return for free content, so that news site you're going to, that content's free for you because of the advertising. As long as you're comfortable with that trade, you should be comfortable with advertising. And so because we've always operated within those constraints, uh, this is probably a good thing for our business overall, but it certainly is causing a lot of chaos and confusion across the market.
0: Who's best at figuring this out? I mean, is it the is it Google? Is it Facebook? I mean, who's actually really good at it and who's terrible? <laughs> well, it's funny. If you think
5: of who really deeply understands privacy, uh, I don't think anybody does. I don't think we as humans have figured out what it's going to mean to have all of our data floating around in the cloud for the rest of our lives. Um, so I think it's the regulators in Europe trying to take a first step. I think there's some small companies like AppNexus that are starting to Think about what does advertising mean in a privacy first a privacy first world, um, but we're just learning what this is going to mean.
1: So Brian, there's been some discussion about how the GDPR in Europe and other privacy rules are going to make people realize, wow, my data is valuable. I should be making money from it. Do you see that happening where people directly get income from advertisers?
5: there are programs where they do. So Amazon has an affiliate program where if you put an Amazon ad on your site, you know they'll pay you for all the products that are sold through that link. So that's an example. Um, I think the challenge is that we're already getting value from our data through the content. So if I'm, you know on on Facebook and I'm, seeing my friends' baby pictures for free, I guess, um, that's being subsidized. All the servers and engineers at Facebook are getting paid by ads.
1: Pam, I get the sense that he uh, doesn't necessarily view his friends' baby pictures as a benefit. (laughs) No, but I would pay a
0: lot of money for that. Okay, yeah. But I I think you raise an interesting point because there's, on the one hand, there's this big conversation about privacy, right? You know, there's a debate about it. Oh, everyone wants to secure everything and so on. But when it comes to saying, oh um we'll give you frequent flyer miles or we'll give you some kind of bonus if you type in your age and your address and your zip code oh we want that right so they want the plus side but they don't want the negative i guess you're right i mean at the end of the day it's all
5: about you know value transfer so i'm willing to tell you my age and my my gender because It doesn't cost me much. You can just look at me right now and I think probably infer it. Um, I'm not giving up much information. Now, if I told you that I, you know, am an active Rogaine user, you might be like, aha, I can market to this man. And I might not want that being broadcast. We're not live, right? So, you know, that's the thing I might want to keep private. Okay, good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. So uh, let me follow that up then. Are publishers getting a fair shake when it comes to the information that they think they're receiving from the intermediary between them and their supposed online customers? Now, that's the $100 billion question.
5: Google has built a $100 billion revenue business, basically being that intermediary between publishers and the consumer. Facebook has built a massive business where all they do is take those baby pictures, layer on ads and sell them back effectively to other consumers. So I don't think that journalists and other real producers of content, of high quality editorial journalism, are getting full fair value for that. And I do think that's something that we as a society are gonna be really confronting
0: over the next few years. But how about the advertisers? Are they getting real information when it comes to who they think they're reaching? I would argue no. Um, You
5: know, Google has used this European privacy law to restrict the data that advertisers can get. So as a publisher, you can give your data to Google. As a consumer, you can give it to Google. As an advertiser, you can give it to Google. But nobody gets it back.
1: So I want to talk a little bit about AppNexus because I think it's a fascinating idea that in real time you can auction off space on a website to advertisers and see who bids the most for a specific viewer's data and their eyeballs for that moment. I just want to figure out how much the costs vary, how many advertisers bid on each spot. I mean, how how active is this?
5: It's incredibly active. So on a given uh, impression, so a video or a, a website, as you say, um, there can be hundreds or thousands of advertisers bidding. And for a really high-value user, um, let's say someone who just searched for a vacation on a, a travel site, you can see bids up to $1,000 per 1,000 impressions. So a dollar per ad, uh, which is amazing at the scale of the Internet. Uh, and then for other users, you might see it in, in the pennies. So a huge range of interest in different users in different contexts.
1: So just to be clear, the way that advertisers know who is looking at them is that they use the cookies – uh, and sort of the information that they can glean from the website uh, that is sort of asking them to be present on.
5: And, and they also use the context. So someone who's listening to this show right now is probably a very high-value user just because of you know, how great this content is. Of course. And so, of course. So an advertiser might say, I'll pay more for that show than I would for you know, some random stream on, on Spotify no one's ever heard. Um, so it's both who you are and what you're listening to or what you're watching or what you're doing.
0: Interesting. Many thanks to you for uh, coming on and sharing this with us. Uh, I guess uh, it just reminds everybody that there's a lot that we don't know about what goes on online.
1: I love the idea that somebody who just booked a vacation is red meat. It's like, oh, we gotta sell them stuff. They're gonna be (laughs) buying lots of stuff, so.
0: (laughs) Travel insurance, you'll get those.